Are you here? Hey, I'm definitely here. Are you? You here? Ah, if you're here, just quietly whisper and turn to your neighbor and say, I'm here. Good, thanks. We're all here. And therefore, this episode of the Paul Leslie Hour is officially underway. The major motion picture Elvis is going to be out any day now, and Paul plans to see it with Ms. Paul as soon as possible. Do you have a favorite song that Elvis sang? Well, (laughs) most of us have a few, but everyone knows Can't Help Falling in Love, which brings to mind this interview that Paul Leslie had with the late Luigi Creatore, one of the most imaginative, kindest people around. Luigi Creatore was born December 21st, 1921. And Luigi, sadly, passed away December 13th, 2015. Luigi was a songwriter and record producer. He was born in New York City. He was mostly known for co-writing the song Can't Help Falling in Love for Elvis. Luigi Creatore also wrote English lyrics for the song The Lion Sleeps Tonight, remember that? Recorded by The Tokens. And as a record producer, Creatore produced major hits for pop singer Jimmy Rogers and went on to work with Perry Como, Sam Cooke, Ray Peterson, just to name a few. Creatore was a creative writer. He wrote a book and he collaborated in a Broadway musical titled Maggie Flynn. One of Luigi's last projects was the off-Broadway play, An Error of the Moon. Now, this interview was conducted at Luigi Creatore's condominium in Boca Raton, Florida, and features a surprise appearance from Luigi's wife, Claire Weiss Creatore. It's one of Paul's top interviews that he likes to remember. Hey, can you help us in our effort to get these historical interview artifacts out there in the world, please consider visiting thepaulleslie.com slash support. Only takes a moment. Makes a big difference. And now we're going to start this interview. It's a good one, folks. Join us as we remember Luigi Creatore. Okay. I think we're all good to go. All right, Claire, you're the audience for now. Okay, all right. Am I allowed to clap or anything? Sure. Okay. Oh, I may pull her in at one time because when you find out who she is. Okay, that's fine. All right. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's a great pleasure to welcome our special guest. He's a legend, Mr. Luigi Creator. Thank you so much for making the time to do this. Well, thank you for having me on. Yes, yes. So, I think most stories are best from the beginning. Where are you from? What's from the beginning? You're going way back. Yeah, yeah. Where am I from? I was born and brought up in New York City in Hell's Kitchen. Hell's Kitchen. Yeah, when it was Hell's Kitchen. Now it's a luxury, but the other, in those days it wasn't. And I grew up there, and in my high school days, I started writing and I started getting interested in theater. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was surrounded by theaters there. And I used to sneak into the second act, oh, because in those days, after the first act, everybody came out to smoke. 
Mm-hmm. And then they went in, and I went in with them. <laughs> By that time, they weren't getting tickets. So I know every second act in, on Broadway. So that's how I started. And then uh, we'll skip a forward, forgetting the war and all that kind of nonsense. And uh, uh, when I came out, I went into writing, and I teamed up with a fellow called Hugo Peretti, who was my cousin. And we uh, started, uh, I was a writer and he was a musician. We started making children's records, and we wrote a lot of children's records. Then from there, uh, the fellow who was the head of Mercury Records saw us making these, we made some records for him. And he said, uh, you, you can make, you can do pop records. I said, sure, we can do that. So uh, he gave us a shot, and we, and we came up with the first hit with a group called the Gaylords, and it was the Little Shoemaker, and that was the first hit we had. And then we had uh, Georgia Gibbs, and we did Twiddly Dee, we did Dance With Me Henry, then we had... Then we had um, Sarah Vaughan. They gave us Sarah Vaughan. They said, can you do anything with her? She's a jazz artist. We sell some jazz albums. But we think she should have a hit, and nobody can get her a hit. So we went to work on it, and we did a thing called called Make Yourself Comfortable. Mm -hmm. And that broke her the first time. (laughs) She'd come into the office ready to to talk. The fellow who recorded her previous to us, he said, you're going to do Sassy? We said, yeah. He said, well, you know, I got to tell you, she goes through 90 things, nothing is good, and she leaves. She's very tough. So I said, okay, thanks for the tip. So when she came in, and I agreed, you know, Hugo and I figured it out. We were supposed to do four songs to a session in those days. And she said, I'm putting up something to read. What does it say? <laughs> it says, face the camera now and then. Oh, okay. <laughs> Look at you. I'm very happy. Oh. So, so we said, hey, uh, instead of trying to get all these songs for her to pick, we only had two. So when she came, we said, you know, we can't find four good songs. She says, I know there's nothing out there. I said, yeah, we found two. See if you want to do these. If not, you're going to Europe, and when you come back, we'll think about it. But the, but the company wants you to record now. So she looked at him, she said, okay, okay, the two of them. She says, there's nothing else. I said, there's nothing else. You want to do this or not? So we did it. Make yourself comfortable in another side. And it came out, and she was in Europe someplace or coming back. And it came out, and we went to number one. And we got a call in the office. And she was on a bus. They said, you got a call from an ocean liner. And it was Sarah. And she said, I love you, I love you, I love you, and hung up. And from then on, she came in and said, what do you want me to do? She had, she didn't go over songs. A couple of times she met us in the studio, having never seen the song, because she was that good a musician. She could mm. go in and read it. You know, I tell... Because I'm not a musician, but Hugo was. Right. And so I'd say, Hugo, show her the song. You go to the piano, show her the song. That was it. She went to record. And it didn't let her do more than one or two takes. Because if you get to the fourth or fifth take, it was another song. Uh-huh. Because of her improvisation. 
which is beautiful for a jazz thing, but we were making pop records to sell. It's it's the music business, you know. You're supposed to sell them. Right. So, <laughs> so uh, what, what interesting thing I want to tell you, around that time, we recorded with her a thing called, oh, after that one, it was How Important Can It Be, which was a hit. And then we did another thing called Mr. Wonderful. Hmm. Now, those two things were written by George David Weiss. You know his name? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Well, he, he then became our writing partner years after that. But what was interesting is that this young lady that I live with it was is George's widow. Oh. So, so, so we knew each other from 40 years ago. And uh, after George died and my wife died recently, she had Alzheimer's, and it just went on and on. But now we're together. You want to see what she looks like? Come oh. over here. Come over here. They want to see what you look right. like. Yeah. They can't. Not on radio. <laughs> <laughs> Hello. Okay. That's enough. <laughs> All right, give me one second. Uh, something real quick. What? What? It's went out. Oh no! Just oh. just checking. I just like to. It's check. still going. Oh yeah. And then you can edit all this, right? Yeah. yeah. You look this way more, you know, because you're getting nothing but side views. Well, I, you know, I'm talking to him, and it's hard <laughs> to face the camera and talk to him. But um, all right, where are we? Well, I wanted to kind of ask you about your your parents. Uh, oh, my parents were back there. Yeah, yeah. T tell us, was it a lot of music in the house? Oh yeah, my father was a very famous a bandmaster. He had a, a concert band that he brought over from Italy. He came over here in nineteen hundred one or two and cased the joint and found out what was going on. And he found a manager. He went back to Naples and he got 50 men. He said, you want to come with me? And it's all voluntary, you know. And they all came and they went to Philadelphia. And in the winter, they practiced. And in the spring, they opened at um, Steel Pier in Atlantic City with the band. And the whole thing was they had a 50 musicians, 50, because they never had a band like that. And... Uh, but he did classical music and, and, and some march things, but just a few. And then he was discovered by Oscar Hammerstein, the grandfather of the Oscar Hammerstein we know, hmm. the, the songwriter. The grandfather was, a, was an impresario, and he loved the band, and he brought it to New York City, to Hammerstein's Roof Garden. And he displayed it there, and, and the New York Times and all the papers said that the women were fainting and with this, with this band. So he became a, a sensation, and he traveled all through the United States and Europe some, but most of the United States. And uh, it was very, in the time of John Philip Sousa and those people, that, he was one of the bands. As a matter of fact, in, in uh, The Music Man, in the lead-in to 76 trombones, the guy says something like, and then all the bands came to town. John Philip Sousa, Richard Pryor, the great creator. 
And that was my father. So he's that's... In, he's in the frame. He's in, he's in the frame there, but he's in the frame? He's in the frame. Hey, Bob! <laughs> <laughs> he's in the frame. That is a, is a, is a mask of his. I mean, that's exactly his face. Uh, well, and then... So that's the, my background. What, what else do you want to know about my background? I want to know about when you first started to write. I first started to write in high school. Uh, writing for the paper, writing. I loved to write. And I was in, uh, I remember, English class, you know. They had asked for a composition. And I wrote the composition. All the kids wrote compositions. And when they handed them back, they were marked. And I had a hundred and I looked at it, and then there was red lines here, and red lines here, and red lines here. So I stayed after class, and I said, Mr., I forgot his name. I think it was O'Brien. I remember what he looked like, and that he had very flashy socks, but I forgot his name. Anyway, he said to me, I said to him, you gave me a hundred. He said, yes. I said, but look, what is all this? He said, well, those are misspellings and grammatical errors. I said, how could you give me a hundred? He said, because those misspellings and those things, people will correct them for you. You keep writing. Mm. So you know what it did? It relieved me of the fact when I was writing that I'm, don't worry about the spelling. Don't worry about, just write what you want to write. Mm -hmm. And that was a great lesson. And I don't, that teacher probably doesn't exist anymore. But, but teachers sometimes don't know how much they influence a child just with a word or two at the right time about the right subject. And uh, so then when I come out of uh, high school, I went to City College for a while, and then, you know, the war was coming, 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 so I went and enlisted in the Navy. And I was in the Navy... Uh, uh, about four and a half years, five years. And and uh, then I was discharged. And I came back to New York. And I said, what am I going to do for a living? You know, you got to make a living. So I said, I like to write. I'm a writer. So I saw an ad in the paper for a writer. It was for the CIO. And they wanted a writer to write uh, press releases and this and that. So I went up and I just told them I'm a writer. <laughs> so, and I showed them some of the things I had written in the Navy. In the Navy, I wrote columns for the paper and I wrote short stories that were published in our Navy magazine. Mm -hmm. So, uh, so I had something to show. So the guy said, uh, well, I'm going to give you a shot. He said, how much do you want? So I said, about $25 a week. Because I know when I left, men were working on the WPA, supporting a family for $24 a week. So I figured I'll ask for $25. And he said, I'll give you $35. <laughs> I said, okay. Then I found out later the job called for $50, see? Oh. Which I got a little later. <laughs> but... But those are things, you know, when you come out of the Navy, you don't know anything. You don't know what's really going on. And, but but then, and then I wrote commercially for them for a while, and I started working with other people. I, I wrote a book. United Nations. 
Oh, I work for the United Nations. Thank you, Claire. Roosevelt. Yeah. <laughs> I, I went to work after the CIO. I was recommended. I went to work for the United Nations. They were having a drive, the uh, United Nations Appeal for Children, which then morphed into UNICEF, which is still going. And, and I wrote for Eleanor Roosevelt, and I wrote for Trig V. Lee, and uh, a lot of the, the people, the celebrities that came through, I wrote speeches for them. And uh, then, uh, then I think I got into the record business with my cousin Hugo Peretti, who I met at a concert. We were sitting next to each other. It was, my brother was giving a piano recital. And so you say, the music. Music was all around my family. Mm -hmm. Everybody was a musician except me. I, I, I was, my father brought me to the piano. He tried to teach me the piano. I didn't take. He brought home a violin. I dropped everything. Uh, he brought home drums. He brought home a saxophone. He says, it's a jazz instrument, but maybe you could play it. I couldn't play it. So on my 11th birthday, he said, I don't have, we were in the, the depression then and we were in a cold water flat in Hell's Kitchen. And he said, I have nothing to give you, but for music, you are negative. So you don't have to take any more music lessons anytime. <laughs> so, and that was my present. And I don't know what I got for my 10th birthday or my 12th birthday, but for my 11th birthday, I didn't have to play music. So I am not a musician, but I'm, I'm a lyricist. Mm -hmm. Well, tell us a little bit about what it was like working with Hugo. Did you all get along very well when you worked? Oh, we got along phenomenally well. People didn't understand how we got along so well. We became partners not only in writing but in business because we went into production. We, we wrote children's records and we produced them. And, and we sold them. <laughs> the first children's records, we sold a guy called Lapidus in the garment district. And he didn't know much about it. He didn't know anything about the record business. But he figured if he had this vinyl left over from his business. So he figured he could, and he had the stamps because he made buttons. So all he had to do was flatten out the mold and he made records. So he says, I'll do that. So he hired us to write children's records. And we wrote tons of them. And he, he pressed them, and he sold them in boxes of, of, of 100 or whatever, a huge box, to the, to the 5 and 10s of this. And they sold for 10 cents or a quarter, whatever. And I told him once, you know, when we write this material and the songs, we, we wrote little children's songs, but they were songs. And I said, you know, they pay royalties. He says, don't talk to me royalties. Don't talk to I'll give you the money to do it, and that's it. Goodbye. So that was the choice. We took the money, you know, a couple of thousand dollars he'd give us. We'd make a record for 1600 and we we had 400 And that's how we kind of scrounged around. Then we did some uh, commercial jingles and stuff like that. And then about that time, uh, oh, how do I get along with Hugo, you're saying? Our partnership was very unique because... And I have to give him credit. He said, you know, partnerships break up because I want that chair and I can't have it or I'm going to take this home or 
I ate out with my wife and I and I gave it to the company and you didn't eat out, you know. He said, well, forget all those things. Whatever we do, we do. Whatever we charge to the company, maybe you'll spend more and I'll spend less, but next year it'll be the other way around. And it evens off and it's not important. Mm-hmm. It's against breaking up a partnership. So that was another lesson I learned. And, and um, we did that. We just take, took care of each other. If one guy was out of out of the out of town for a week and we had to do make a decision, we made a decision without him. And and we just uh, people don't know how we got along. Well, about thirty years, we were together. No, and during that time that we were together and we were producing, we started with Merc- Mercury Records, and then a fellow named whatever his name was right now. Wait a minute. We started with Mercury Records, and then we went. We formed Roulette Records with Morris Levy. That was the guy. He said, "Come with me, and I'll give you fifty percent of the thing." I said, "That sounds good." So we went there, and and uh, we started recording our first record out. With huh. when we were at Mercury, there was a young kid came along and auditioned, and we liked him, but we had to get permission from Chicago which was the main office, to who we signed. So we sent the dub to Chicago, and we got an answer. We got too many boys. Okay, so we forgot about them. When we went to Roulette and started looking for artists, I said, what about that kid that came in? Where is he? We tried to look him up, and we couldn't find him. And I put a, a, a private detective on. And he started looking, looking, and he came up with, the guy was at a lumber camp in, in Seattle. So we called him and said, you want to make a record? He said, yeah. I said, okay, come in, we'll do something. So he came in and we made Honeycomb, Jimmy Rogers. And it went to number one. And then we made another one called Kisses Sweeter Than Wine. And then we made another one called Oh, I'm Falling in Love Again. And so forth. He had five hits in a row. And uh, then we left. We went to uh, RCA. RCA came after us, actually. And, and we didn't want to go. We, didn't want, we said, we have our own company. They said, well, this, we'll give you that, we'll give you that. And finally, they said, we'll give you a million dollars to come over. So I said, well, we, we can't refuse it. Because in those days, a million dollars was a million dollars. And so we went over. And we went there for about five, five and a half years. And when we did, we brought Sam Cook in to RCA. He had a great run, great run, great talent. So, but I was getting you were interviewing me as a songwriter, right? Well, we can we can go anywhere, Get anywhere I want. Okay, <laughs> but as a, uh, going back to being as a songwriter, when we were at RCA, we also wrote some stuff. You know, besides being busy. We were producing records. That's what we did. Which entails, it's a lot of work to produce a record because it's not just a recording. It's, there's a lot happens before. But Julie Stein, you know, the oh, composer, yeah. yeah. He, he was a friend of ours, kind of, and we did one of his shows. We recorded, we knew him. And he said, you know, you guys write pretty good. Why don't you write more? 
And I say, you know why don't, we don't write more? Because we don't get to it, because we're busy with other stuff. He said, you know, I have an idea. You need somebody to, you know, to force you into the situation where you got to write. And there's a fellow called George David Weiss. He just broke up with uh, Weiss and... Uh, Benny Benjamin. Benny Benjamin. Benjamin and Weiss it was before us. And he he's alone and he should be with somebody. So he came up and we talked and we, talked and we started writing together. And we wrote from then on, the three of us wrote together. And we wrote a lot of songs, but the big ones we wrote were Can't Help Falling in Love yeah. for Presley and, and The Lion Sleeps Tonight. And then... One day we were sitting around and we had to go into the studio and George said to me, you know, there's a guy doing a Louis Armstrong album and he wants me to help him write a couple of songs for the album. He says, do you mind if I do that? I said, George, you're a writer. We're doing a lot of other things. Go write and come back. So he went to write and he was gone one day. He came back the next morning. And I said, George, what'd you write? He said, well, I wrote a thing called, called What a Wonderful World. Yeah. <laughs> which, which, you know, just exploded. Not then. That, that's a story, you know, of what happens to songs sometimes. A song can come out with the right act and the right artist and become an immediate smash from the record. Sometimes, as in the case of What a Wonderful World, nothing happened. It came out on the Louis Armstrong album, and Armstrong was played here and there, but nothing, nothing happened. Along came a movie called "Good Morning Vietnam." Yeah, and who, who was it? The, the the comedian that played that? Robin Williams. Yeah, yeah, Robin Williams played that, and he was a disc jockey in Vietnam, and he played "What a Wonderful World," and. The greatest use I've seen of a song. Here comes a screen in Vietnam, and the bombers are coming in, and the children are on the street crying, and there's explosions here and there, but no sound. The only sound is Louis Armstrong singing, What a Wonderful World. And the kids crying and getting slaughtered. The, the contrast was so great uh, that, that it was a fantastic use of that song. Now, after that, some of the jazz guys started picking it up. Mm -hmm. And I heard it here and I heard it there. And then some more. And then it grew. And then some, some advertisers started picking it up for, for commercial ads. And then it kept going and kept going. And it became a giant. You don't know how big that song is. Anyway, that's the history of that song. Well, you mentioned a song there uh, that everyone knows, the Elvis Presley song that you wrote with... Can't help falling. I wrote it with Hugo and with George. Yeah, tell us about the writing of that song. How did that come about? <laughs> well, what happened was that um, Julian Alberbach, he was a publisher who published Elvis Presley. He had, a, he had a firm with Elvis Presley. And everything went through that firm or it didn't get done. So he came up to us. We knew him. He came up to the office at RCA. And he said, I, I like to give you the scene when Presley comes back from Europe in the, in the movie. Blue Hawaii was the movie. Comes back from Europe and he has a, a uh, 
uh, one of those boxes. Uh, music box. A music box. You know, with the tinkly thing, the European sound, and he and he opens it and he sings a love song. We need the love song. And and you people, you I think you could capture the European flavor. So so we did it. We took a couple of days, and I remember we had a big office here, and then an adjoining office, so we could go in and make phone calls and get out of the thing. And I was sitting making phone calls, and Hugo and George were at the piano, and they had this melody going. Which was the jingle of the of the uh, music box, and I was in the next room, and I kept here, and they kept doing it, and they kept doing it, and then I suddenly said, I went out and I said, the name of this song is "I Can't Help Falling in Love with You." Fits there. They said right, and they kept going on, on. and so then they had that much. And George went home. George never stopped working. He came in the next morning. See, we stopped. When we stopped, we went and did something else. He went home and he kept working. So he came in with the top. Wise men say, only fools rush in, but I can't help falling in love with you. Then we together, we wrote the second hand, which is now craftsmanship. Once you've got the first eight, and now, you know, you don't have to be a genius, you have to be a craftsman to, to, to line them up. And, and uh, so we wrote, Shall I stay? Would it be a sin if I can't help falling in love with you? Then we worked together on the middle part for another couple of days because we worked in the mornings and then George went away and, you know, so it took two or three days, but we got the middle. And then we got the middle and they were playing this song and we got through the middle, and they stopped because the last two lines we didn't have. And he kept playing it, and I said, I said, oh, wait a minute, I gotta think of the, the, the uh, like a river flows surely through the sea, darling, so it goes, some things are meant to be. Ah, I said, I hear, take my hand. And they were sitting at the piano, and they both turned and looked at me. Now, what the hell are you talking about? Take my, you here, take my hand. They looked at one of those disgusted looks, both of them. <laughs> and I said, oh, so i got to come out of this. And somehow, I said, take my whole life too. Ah, George says, yes! <laughs> <laughs> he was very demonstrative and very enthused when, you know. So that, that's the whole song. I've dissected it pretty well. But that's the way it happened over two or three days in, in, in segments of a two or three hours' work, you know. Another song that you mentioned, uh, everyone knows the song that the Tokens did. Yeah. Uh, it, the Lion Sleeps Tonight. The Lion Sleeps Tonight. Yeah. Tell me about how that song evolved. Well, that song, see, there was an African chant. This goes way back to Africa. There's a fellow called. Forget the name. He had, a, he had a record company in Africa, and one of the things he did was he recorded African chants from the tribes. Mm-hmm. So they would come in, different groups would come in and say, this is a chant from this tribe and that tribe. And they would record them, he made albums of them. So Gallo, his name was. And that was the name of the company, Gallo Records. And he distributed these. Some of them came to the United States. And 
there was a, another a, a publisher in the United States who then published a folio book from of these chants and African things, and one of them was the melody of of the lion sleeps tonight, mm-hmm. but no words or anything. It was just a melody and whim away, a whim away, whim away. And so then this group, the folk group, picked it up and did it as whim away. Yeah, the weavers. The weavers did it as whim away. Yeah. And, you know, it wasn't a hit or anything. It was nice in folk music. And that was around. Now the tokens uh, had a, an act, and in their act they did whim away, the Pete Seeger, was that it? Yeah, yeah Pete Seeger's version. So when we were doing a, a, a session with them, we had two or three songs, and they said, we'd like to do this. So I said, well, what is it? And they did it. They sang it. I said, it's very nice. Said, Where are the lyrics? So they said, there are no lyrics. Claire? 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 Okay. We, we can hear you here. Claire, we can hear you here. I'm sorry, it was uh, the lawyer, Anthony. Oh, the lawyer, you gotta talk to a lawyer. Okay. (laughs) Anyway, the Weavers uh, did the song, and the Tolkien's were doing it in their act. So when they were picking songs to record, they said, We wanna do this. So I said, Where are the lyrics? And they said, there are no lyrics. I said, well, we're not doing a song with no lyrics. You need lyrics. So they said, well, you know, who's, we, who's going to do the lyrics? I said, we'll do the lyrics. I said, okay. So they went away. Now we prepared the session, and Hugo and George got a hold of this. They had to change some of the melody because it didn't sing well with lyrics. It, I, it's hard to explain, but... It went down too low where you had to mumble the lyrics. It wasn't good. So so we had to change or They changed the notes to that first part. Then they added a middle, which never existed. And then they changed the ending again musically. Then we wrote the lyric. You know, and it's a simple lyric, but, but it was very effective. And we wrote it the night before we had a record, and the tokens didn't know it. They knew, didn't know the lyric at all. They knew the song. So when we went in to record, I gave him a yellow pad with the lyrics on it. Gave it it's the first time he ever saw the lyric. And he sang the lyric, and they didn't want to do it, but they did it. I said, come on. And they did it once or twice. And when that came out, I think it's the fastest hit you know, become fastest record to become a hit that I've ever seen. It took about two, three weeks. It was number one. It was exploded. And and the company at that time wasn't giving us much backing. They wouldn't take an ad on a new group or anything. And we didn't need anything. Somebody, I think, in Philadelphia started it, and it went like wildfire. Wildfire. Mm-hmm. And that's that one. Well... You mentioned a couple of people, and it's really interesting, all the people you produced. You mentioned Sam Cooke. Yeah. There was also Perry Como. Perry Como, yeah. There was uh, Sarah Vaughn, right? Sarah Vaughn. And... Jimmy Rogers. Jimmy Rogers. Not the country Jimmy Rogers. No, no, not the 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 pop, yeah. So, 
Who was the most thrilling to work with? Most thrilling? When you were producing. Well, Sarah Vaughan was the greatest musician and interpreter of songs. She, she was just thrilling to go in with, and we had to restrain her because we were looking for the pop record, you know. We did whatever Lola wants with her. It was a hit. But she, if you let her do it three or four times, it would have been another song, and then it wouldn't have got played. But she was the most interesting to me. Perry Como, you know, he was such a, an idol that to work with this man, it, it was a little overwhelming, but he made us very comfortable, took us in his office, and we talked and went back and forth and told jokes and... Enjoyed it very much. He was what he looked like. Very easy going. We want to yeah. do this. Okay, let's do that. And I bring him a song. I think this would be a hit. And he says, I don't think so. He says, no. He says, it might be a hit. You're right. But I don't like the song. I want to do better songs. So I said, okay. He didn't want to do a little ditties. And he says, if I get a hit, I'm between this and the other guy. And they're doing all, you know, he was, it was out of his element. Uh, as it happens to everybody, as they grow older, the 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 current stuff is leaving them, you know, uh, whether it's musical or lyrical or attitude or what they're saying or how they're saying it. It changes, changes, changes. So the guy that was a big act star, whether he's a comedian or a singer or whatever, as time goes by, if he stays with what he's doing, the world changes around him. Mm -hmm. Except me. Nothing has changed. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know, it's really interesting because so many of these songs are still heard all the time. Yeah. So when somebody listens to something that you either wrote or produced, yeah. what do you want the listener to get out of that experience? of hearing something that you worked on or wrote? Well, you know, I want them to be pleased. I want him to, if it's a rhythm thing, I want him to feel rhythm in his body. He may not know it. He's tapping his foot listening to it. He's enjoying it. It's it doing something inside for him. If it's a, a strong ballad, I hope it hits something in him that resonates. Uh, if it's an up-tempo, I think it resonates in a different way. Make them happy. That that um, lion sleeps tonight. People just smile when it comes on. You know, they love it. Everybody. Right away. It's kids. Yeah. And the kids all know it. That's, that song was written in 1961. And the kids today know it. Right. Yeah. It's wonderful. What is the best thing about being Luigi Creator? Having Claire Weiss here with well. me. <laughs> you know, I knew you were going to say that. Yeah, did you? <laughs> yeah, sure well, it's did. obvious, obviously. That's a no-brainer. <laughs> uh, you know, and then, well, I told you who she is. George Weiss's widow. and But he died some time ago, and then my wife was ill and ill and ill, and then she died. And we got together because we were doing some business things together, in the publishing, and then, you know, we got to know each other. Well, we met 40 years ago when, when George and everybody met her, and, and then she married. After, I'd like to say after we met, we, shortly after we got married, but not to each other. 
he married, she married George, and I married somebody else. And then, now we're together and very, very happy. You happy? Absolutely. <laughs> See? <laughs> it's wonderful. Well, what are you most proud of in your career? In my career? Well, I'm proud of a couple of plays I wrote. Yeah, let's talk about uh, that. You, you're very passionate about theater. Yes, I love theater. I loved it since I was a kid. And then after George, well, before he died, because he, he got sick, Hugo died, George got sick, so I was alone. And so I started writing plays. Right here in Florida, I started writing for the community theater for something to do. Then I put some of those together, went to New York, and his producer said, I like this play. And she produced it. A thing called Flamingo Court, which is about three families living in a, an apartment building in Florida, New Yorkers who moved down. And so they're three different story plots, three different stories. And the reason for them being in the same condo and the whole thing was that I was doing it for the community theater here, and they couldn't get three sets. So basically, it's the same set. It's apartment 1A, 2A, and 3A. They changed the sofa and a couple of pictures, and you were in a different apartment. And that, that played, and we had fun with that. And that was one into New York, and we did it with um, a couple of theatrical names, and it went for about a year, and then it closed. And next year, the producer said, I could do better with this without the names just a good ensemble cast, and she did it again. Mm -hmm. So it ran again. And then I did a play called An Error of the Moon, which was about Edwin Booth. It tells the story. He's an actor. He was the prime Shakespearean actor of his day in the 1800s. And his brother was John Wilkes Booth, who assassinated Lincoln. So he's telling the story of his relationship with his brother and, and the wife. He, he suspects that his wife is having an affair with his brother. Now, it's not true, but he suspects it and he gets obsessed with it. Meantime, he's playing Macbeth. He's playing... Wait a minute. He's playing... What is it with the... Othello. He's so, playing Othello, who is obsessed with his wife being unfaithful to him, and she's not. So it's the same situation. Anyway, that was a very good play. It ran for a season and it did well. I, I, I like writing for a theater, and I like being in it, you know, seeing it develop, the rehearsals, the putting together. And then I recently wrote another thing called Daddy's Little Girl. And my producer won't produce it because she said it was too heavy for the theater for Off-Broadway. And because of the subject matter, which was the father who raped his 13-year-old daughter, and then as time goes by, he's running for governor, and this thing is starting to come out. And, uh, and uh, she said audiences would walk out on that. Mm. So... I said, okay, I was up in New York with Joyce. I said, let's go to Italy. And we went to Italy for 
Claire. Three weeks to, to forget about it. What? You said Joyce. I said Joyce? <laughs> that was another wife. Okay. <laughs> I said, so are, I said are you Claire. writing anything right now? Am I writing anything? Right no, now? I'm disgusted. Yeah. Because this last play is a good play, and they say the audiences will walk. Not, it's not good for theater because the audiences won't take it. And you turn on television or go to a movies, they're doing everything under the sun. Yeah. You know, hmm. there's no subject barred, but for off Broadway, the little old ladies who go there for matinees would walk out. Hmm. I don't know. So, say la vie, but, you know, I'll come up with something else. Have you thought about writing, uh, like, fiction or... Fiction? Books, you know? Well, yeah, I started out. I wrote a book when I was a kid. Still, when I was working for the CIO, I was at home writing a book which was published uh, when I was, like, 24 years old. And... Uh, called This World is Mine. And it's about a sailor who, who uh, gets amnesia. And it, it's his, his experience in the hospital for five days till he comes out of it. And that's all it is. Nothing before, nothing after. And it was very well received. Uh, I got nice reviews in the New York Times and all that. And uh, that was it. And I wrote a lot of fiction, a lot of uh, uh, short stories prior to that, you know. Then I got away from that kind of writing. I love to write for the theater, though. Mm -hmm. Well, my last question is very open-ended. For anyone who's either watching this, yes, or listening to it, or reading a transcript, what would you say to anyone who's experiencing this interview? Experiencing the interview, I, I just like to give them any information they want to know. If you're saying... Does anybody that's looking or listening want to become a writer? Uh, what would they do? We just have to write, write, write. There's no formula. There are schools, but and I've been to them, but you don't. That's not really where you learn. You know where you learn. You learn there. I was going to say on the typewriter. Now it's on the on the keyboard of your computer. That's where you learn with that blank screen. And you have to do it. And you have to sit there until you do something. And it, you sit there an hour or two and waste the time. Next day, do it again and waste the time. And the third or fourth day, you'll say, I can't waste this time. I have to write something. And you will write something. <laughs> Thank you very much. Listen, it was enjoyable it was meeting pleasure. you. I love the mustache. Thank you. <laughs> <laughs> And I love what, the way you present things and talk. Uh, you re, made me very relaxed, and I say anything I want, and it's fine. Uh, okay? It was a joy. All right. Thank you for stopping by today. If you enjoyed our program, consider telling a friend about it. The Paul Leslie Hour is made possible through people just like you. So you want to keep the show going, right? Go to thepaulleslie.com. That's thepaulleslie.com. Click on Support the Show. And thanks to everyone who contributes. Performance of the intro music is courtesy of John Primerano, The Entertainer, written by Scott Joplin. End credit theme music is courtesy of John Primerano, the traditional song, Corina, Corina. Your announcer is Dan Gold. 
Hey, that's me. The show is hosted and produced by Paul Leslie. And we'll see you next time on the Paul Leslie Hour.